Welcome to Divorce Redefined, changing the experience of divorce with Cindy Stibbard. Cindy is ready to have those candid and unfiltered conversations so you know how to move forward in your marriage. You'll hear inspiring and insightful discussions surrounding this taboo subject to help you feel confident in your decision. Now, here's your host, Cindy Stibbard. Welcome back, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Divorce Redefined. I'm your host, Cindy Stibbard, and I'm excited to get into a topic that's recently become a very important topic to me in my life personally, and that is about hormones and women's hormone health, losing weight, this whole idea of is Ozempic safe out there, and I want to talk a lot about what women in our 40s, over 40, start to face when it comes to our bodies because it's things start to change. And I noticed them starting to change for me in the last couple of years. And I couldn't think of a better person to bring on this show than my very good friend, Emily Sadri. She's a board-certified nurse practitioner and hormone hormones health expert. She helps women transform their health with compassion, cutting-edge science, and serious self-care. She uses hormones to help you figure out how to lose weight and how to take care of so many more things on your body than just your weight, your mental health, your mood, your skin. There's a variety of things that hormones can help with, and Emily helps hundreds of women figure out the root causes of their fatigue, their anxiety, their weight gain, and their hormonal issues. And so I thought she would be a perfect person to have on the show today. Plus, she's my good friend. (laughs) Welcome, Emily. Thank you so much, Cindy. It's such a pleasure to be here. And that was quite an intro, but I'm really seriously looking forward to getting into this conversation because I do think that there's such an overlap between our world's Um, and also in the personal development world in general and in the kind of hormone um, space and midlife woman health space. And I don't Mm -hmm. think there's enough, I don't think there's enough conversations like this happening. Um, The the health people tend to stay in the health world talking about all the health things and then the personal development people are on the other side. And, you know, it's not an accident that, so many women who are going through big um, personal development changes who are, you know, maybe having what would have formerly been called a midlife crisis, but are really starting to get to know themselves, um, maybe in their 40s for the first time, Mm -hmm. um, really understand their needs for the first time. It's not a coincidence that this is coinciding with massive hormonal shift in the body. And so we need to bring more attention to this. And so I'm so excited to really get into this today so that um, people can start to make those connections. Yes, I know. I totally agree. And I think that we don't really focus on that. It's like very compartmentalized with what goes on in our lives, like especially something like divorce or loss of a partner. And then things start going wrong in your body, but you might not be at the age where you've thought that it could be hormonal. And you realize it doesn't have to be, you know, entering menopause or premenopausal for any type of big shift in your life to have an impact on your hormones. Or for hormones to maybe not be operating at their alt optimal level, that's kind of impeding your ability to reach a certain goal. And that might be to lose weight, for example, after having babies. And there's so much that can go on with hormones. And I don't know how, you know, I think that you guys in the States are a lot more 
open, a lot more cutting edge with what that looks like. I know up here in Canada, it's a bit more regulated and it's a lot more difficult to be able to get the support that you need through hormones. You know, it's either your your holistic naturopath or it's a, you have to be referred to, referred to refer a specialist doctor. Like a lot of our, our doctors don't understand hormone health. And there's a lot of fear. I know I, I also want to get into that whole, the, the, the old way of thinking of what mm-hmm. we used to feel that, you know, estrogen caused cancer and all of these things that I think a lot of women, I had a conversation with my mom yesterday about like, oh my gosh, you're not taking hormones, are you? And I'm like, yeah. Yes, I do. Mm. I need to. You know, they cause cancer. So that mm. old, you know, old ways of thinking. So I'd love to be able to chat with you about some of these newer ways of thinking and being open to really, really being an advocate for what you need with your healthcare professionals. Because I think that it's important that we go into also knowing what we what we want and how to ask for it. Yeah, no, I think you bring up several good points. Um, First, I will say that I I don't know that it's actually that much better in the States. Um, I think (laughs) it's, (laughs) I really, I think it's just as bad. I mean, we're, we're experiencing for the first time in a long time, a resurgence of, um, of activity and buzz around hormones um, after it had been through really a dark ages post um, the study that you're referring to, which is the Women's Health Initiative study that came out in 2002, or initial findings came out in 2002. It was the largest um, study ever conducted. It studied mostly women who were well into menopause, um, which is an interesting subset. It's an interesting group because ideally we should be treating women much earlier in the menopause spectrum. And we'll talk about, um, you know, what that will define perimenopause in a second. Um, But it it was treating a much older group of women. They actually were all nurses, which I think is such an interesting demographic to study because if you've ever worked in medicine or in a hospital, nurses are actually not the healthiest um, people in the population. Um, So that's just an interesting little aside. And the drugs that they were studying in the Women's Health Initiative were something called Premarin, which is a conjugated equine estrogen. Do you know what that means? It means it came from horses. It means it came from horses. (laughs) Okay. So the study that you're referring to is the Women's Health Initiative. Um, It changed uh, the hormone landscape and is really what put us into the dark ages for the last 20 some odd years. Um, And it it was actually a really interesting study. They, a large, large group of primarily nurses actually, which is so interesting because if you've ever worked in medicine, um, you would know that nurses actually are not the healthiest population of people, (laughs) Um, you know, a lot of bad lifestyle things, staying up overnight, et cetera, eating terrible junk food. Um, That aside, it Mm -hmm. um, also studied primarily women who are very postmenopausal, which is really not the Mm -hmm. ideal time to be intervening with hormones. What we do know from lots of other research is that the earlier you start, the better. The more that you help women avoid chronic diseases that are accelerated by the loss of estrogen um, and the less side effects and the less, um, you know, problems that you have with starting um, hormone therapy, which makes sense because it's like Mm -hmm. treating something as soon as it's starting to go wrong, right? Um, And so this, what happened was, people got really excited about what appeared to be an increased rate of uh, increased incidence of breast cancer in certain arms of the study. Um, And so, of course, because everyone's so afraid of breast cancer, um, which makes a lot of sense, one in eight women will get breast cancer in their lifetime. um, People came out to the media and said, you know, we saw an increase in breast cancer. And so we're stopping the study immediately. Um, And of course, the media went crazy with this information. Now, the problem with this was 
Um, two things. One, the only group in the study that actually had an increase in incidence initially in the initial sort of um, evaluation of the data of breast cancer was the arm that was taking both estrogen and synthetic synthetic progestin, okay? Um, a product called um, uh, Provera. Well, that's the, the trade name is Provera. It's not actually progesterone. And so it was only this group that was getting Provera that actually had an increase into the incidence of breast cancer. And it was very, very, very marginal, a very marginal increase. The estrogen only arm. So in typically historically in HRT, a woman only needs to take a type of progestin or what we prefer to give, which is bioidentical progesterone, if they have a uterus in their body still. Now, mm -hmm. this is becoming less of a thing because less women are getting hysterectomies than used to. But back in the 70s and 80s, when lots of women were on HRT, a lot of women also had had hysterectomies because it was... Right done really commonly for bleeding issues um, or what have you. And so only the women that were receiving the progestin, the synthetic Provera, were, were, were seen to have this increased risk of breast cancer. The women who actually only received estrogen, we'll talk more about that estrogen in a second, actually had a lower risk of breast cancer. So the estrogen mm -hmm. was protective for those women, right? Which is a very different conclusion than what people initially thought. Everyone thought yeah. that estrogen was the, really the problem. And it was really this synthetic progesterone. Um, and so I don't prescribe that at all in my practice. And most great hormone practitioners that I know also do not prescribe um, Provera in their practice. So only use bioidentical progesterone. The other interesting thing about the study is that it was given, they were giving oral estrogen, um, and mm. oral estrogen, yeah, which is very different. Ma now, most of the time we're using transdermal options for estrogen because right. there is a slightly increased risk of um, clotting abnormalities, cardiovascular events, especially in that initial period of starting estrogen if you're taking it orally. Um, now, personally, uh. I don't. Yeah, I don't like to prescribe it orally because it, it has to go through the liver. Um, it's a totally different way that your body is metabolizing that medication versus if you use it transdermally. So essentially, if you're doing bioidentical hormones, you're using natural progesterone um, and you're using transdermal estrogen. Any and of transdermal means like a cream, people. Like yes. I didn't know what that meant either. It was like a cream yeah. that you put on your labia or somewhere else in, in the thighs, right? Yeah. Generally it's either a cream or it's in the form of a patch. Okay. Um, so the estradiol patch, which is available commercially in the United States, I imagine it's available in Canada as well from like typical pharmacies like CVS. Um, that's actually bioidentical form of hormone. So you mm -hmm. can use a patch or a cream. Um, the patch comes in different titrations of dosing and it's usually changed twice a week. Um, and the cream can be all different types of titrations of dosing. And usually I, we actually have people put the cream on either their inner thighs or their underneath their bicep. We want it to go oh. to an area that has mm -hmm, that has a good amount of fat and a good amount of muscle so that you have, you know, the fat kind of holds the medication and allows the absorption to be slow. And the muscle ensures that you've got good circulation to that area. So I never encourage people to put it, um, you know, on their forearm unless you want like a fast mm -hmm. acting, like maybe if someone's having a headache and they take a tiny bit of transdermal like estrogen cream during the day to treat the headache, um, they would do it on their forearm for a fast action. But for, for, for ongoing therapy, the best places are these larger parts of the body. We would never want you to do it on like the breast or the belly um, or someplace else where there's just a lot of fat and not a lot of muscle mm. um, because it's going to be a really different absorption profile. And similarly with the patch, you would put the patch like on a hip or kind of, you know, here on the ribs, um, right. someplace where there's, where there's, you know, not, it's not just a fatty tissue. There's right. some muscle there as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so we you know it's, and, and it's really now actually the authors of the study have come out and said, 
we made a mistake. <laughs> These are the actual findings. Like many people don't know that, wow, um, no. that hormone therapy actually significantly reduces the woman's chance of getting colon cancer in her lifetime. Really? I've never heard that. That's I mean, imagine, imagine yeah. if that was on the front page of the New York times, like how, how differently we, this conversation would be going. Right. Wow. Um, yeah. But it's the problem is that once you scare a population of people, it's really hard to reverse that. Yes. And so our generation of mothers were particularly influenced by this because they were of age mm-hmm. in 2002, right? 20 years ago. Um, and so they were the ones that were either taken off of their hormones or never offered hormones for their problems. And right. so then we entered into this whole era of, okay, so we know that hormones aren't good. When I was in school, and that was just in the early 2000s, I was taught only prescribe hormones for hot flashes, nothing else, and make sure that you never prescribe it for more than five years, mm-hmm. which is just couldn't be more backwards now in terms of what the what the literature and the professional organizations are actually saying is is evidence-based for women now the yeah. I, the thought is is that you know vasomotor symptoms which is the technical term for hot flashes are really only one small problem um i often don't even see women having hot flashes until much later into their perimenopause journey um and and that estrogen is certainly not just something to be used to treat symptoms, but it's, it's hugely important to be used to preserve bone health, brain right. health, cardiovascular health, metabolic health. It reduces the chance that you're going to become insulin resistant. Right? Estrogen actually sensitizes your cells to insulin. So it makes you less likely to develop type two diabetes. Ah, um, so interesting. And is this when it's like you have that brain fog that women tend to talk about in their forties, you know, after babies, like this is the estrogen piece that's missing. Absolutely. Yeah. So mental clarity and, and a lot of times, you know, so just to, just to kind of give people some scaffolding here, when we're, when we use the term menopause, menopause means that you've gone an entire year without having a natural menstrual cycle. Mm. That means that like some people will never know exactly when they went through menopause because either they were on hormones or they were, you know, on the birth control pill. Hopefully they weren't because I don't think that's a great idea, but you get the idea. Like, so if if they naturally just progress through their forties, the natural age is when you've had no menstrual cycle for an entire year all by yourself. Now that can happen. The average used to be 51. Now we think it's more like 49, but that really Mm. spans. That's just the middle number of between 45 and 55. So there are many women, right, who, who are having full menopause by 45. And perimenopause is the period that lasts for 10 to 15 years prior to your date of menopause. And so that could start for that woman who is becoming menopausal at 45, which I see all the time at Mm -hmm. age 30, right? 30 years old. And we're Mm -hmm. thinking like 30 years old is just when we get our life together. (laughs) We're just starting to think about having babies, right? And now Um, it's all starting. And we're also fed because I know, I know I've been fed that it's really hard to treat with hormones when we still have a cycle. There, it's way easier when you stop having a cycle. Like what's, what's. Yeah. The just because I mean, I mean, that's like, this is my favorite. Like just because something is a little bit more challenging doesn't mean that it's not the right thing to do. Right. Um, I mean, that is just such lazy medicine in my opinion. Like, yeah, of course it's easier because you've got 
nothing, you've got no competing hormones, right? You just come mm. in and you can superimpose whatever you want. But if you're not even treating until they're fully gone, like you've missed an opportunity to support that woman for 10 years of her life. And who knows what happened to her during that time. If you think about yeah. the amount of women walking around in their 40s who are saying to themselves, you know, I used to just, I used, this is one of the first signs. I used to be able to handle so much. I used mm. to be able to knock out a, a workout at the gym, complete seven tasks at home, make dinner, run to, you know, two different soccer games. And that was just a normal day and it didn't overwhelm me. And now I don't even have that much on my plate and I feel so overwhelmed. I, right. What happened to me? Something changed. And that is such a sign of hormone decline because our estrogen, our testosterone also does this. Um, even progesterone, they all really play a role in our neurotransmitter function. So mm. how much dopamine we're secreting, how much serotonin we're able to make, um, how much melatonin we can secrete at nighttime. And right. so it, as those, as our sex hormones start to decline, everything starts to fall apart and we really lose stress resiliency. And so just imagine if we were giving that stress resiliency back to women, just Holy. as they sort of wise up, right? Yeah. <laughs> to, it's just as they're like wising up to like who they really are and what they really want to do, how much that would change the world. And how many times women just, we gaslight ourselves, right? We say like, yes, you know, like I just, um, or we take everything on as if it's all our fault and it all starts with our own mindset. Like, you know, I, I just, you know, I can't really handle that. So I'm trying to be easy on myself. And, you know, I really am working to work. I'm going to work on my mindset when like, really, honey, you just need like probably some thyroid hormone and yeah. <laughs> a little estrogen. And like, it's going to be a very different conversation, you know? Yeah. And these are, this, these are the years where, where women are having babies and they're already feeling like, oh, it's just babies. It's motherhood. It's like, this is what happens to you. And, but that's also such a depleting time of your hormones too, right? Where yeah. we're not treating ourselves back with hormones because we're thinking that we're having babies. It's so and confusing. It's so can confusing. We do that during when we're having babies. Yeah. I mean, that's the hard thing is that, you know, uh, there's a reason why so many people who are going to IVF are getting hormones, right, as part of their IVF plan, right, because they have right. low estrogen. A lot of women are put on oral estrogen, um, you know, prior to retrieval cycles or even prior to um, transplant cycles. So, um, you know, it, it's a huge problem and it's really challenging because, mm -hmm. you know, if you're, if you're, if you're giving birth in your, I had two babies after 35, if you're giving birth in your late thirties um, and you plan to breastfeed it. You can't really supplement with a lot of hormone while you're nursing. Um, yeah. If much at all, you can, you can get away with some progesterone, but it, it can really impact milk supply. Things are changing so much all on their own, just with, mm. you know, the changing baby schedule, how much the less that you nurse, the, you know, the, then you're changing brain hormones right there. You know, everyone kind of who has had a breastfeeding journey probably remembers that around six months when their baby started to eat solids, they may have felt some hormonal changes at that point. Whenever they get their cycle back, they feel some changes. Usually at a year out, there's another shift. And so uh, for the most part, unless, unless someone's having, you know, persistent active symptoms, or if they're not breastfeeding, then that's a totally different story, right? Because you can do a lot mm. more. Um, I think that supportive care is a really good approach, getting educated and thinking about assessing where your hormones are in that six to 12 month period postpartum based on how you're feeling, but certainly assessing thyroid like within six weeks of giving birth. I think that's really important because women in their thirties are at such high risk for having thyroid abnormalities after birth. Yes. Oh. You know, and yeah. you have to specifically 
specifically ask for these, right? Because I also know that, you know, so many women think, oh, my doctor is going to test me. They'll, they'll just te- do my blood. They'll just test my thyroid. But you're talking mm. like specialized levels of tests that are yeah. different than what your doctor is just going to send you for for it's standard. so hard, right? Because Yeah, because we're so socially conditioned to just believe and have such faith and trust that if we walk into that provider's office that they've got our back, yeah. you know? And I, and I, even as long as I've been doing this work, I still have this feeling where I get really angry when I take even my kids or take myself to a a doctor's office, or if I need to see a specialist or something. And I still, there's like still a little girl in me that just really wants them to come through for me. Um, and they don't. I think so many like women in my mother's age have been conditioned to like, well, of course your doctor is telling you what to do. Like your doctor will test your thyroid. And I had to even educate her. And this is where like my mother and I don't get along <laughs> on these levels because she knows the best, right? She's mom. She thinks. Um, mm-hmm. It's like, well, actually they don't test you all the way. You have to ask yeah. specific things and you have to pay for that, you know? And to, But if you don't know what Especially in Canada. Asking, yeah. Yeah. You don't right. know what you're asking for. That's the difference. Yeah. So, so just to give an example, because you could extrapolate this to all hormones in some way, shape or form, but in, in a typical GP's office, if you are, if you say, can you check my thyroid, right? How many women, Mm -hmm. I'm sure that at least half the women listening to this podcast have said like, oh my gosh, that was me. I said, can you check my thyroid? And they, and women, I will tell you this, having been a midwife and delivered babies and taking care of women at so many different phases of their life, like I one thing I know about women is that they have incredible intuition. Like women, mm-hmm. if you just ask them enough questions, spend enough time with them, you will get them to tell you what's wrong with them. Like you will mm-hmm. figure it out from what they say because they just know. They may be stuffing it down, but it's there. That knowledge is there. So they say, can you check my thyroid? And so then the provider runs typically something called a TSH, which stands for thyroid stimulating hormone. That's actually a pituitary hormone that's in your brain. That is meant to kind of act like in, you know, the pituitary gland is like air traffic control for the body. It's surveilling the body. It's seeing how much hormone is around. And then it's producing, secreting thyroid stimulating hormone to talk to the thyroid, to tell the thyroid to make T4 and a little bit of T3. So sometimes they will do a thyroid stimulating hormone and a T4. Sometimes they will only do a TSH and then it will say with a reflex to T4, which means that they will only check T4 if the TSH is wildly out of range. Mm. However, the conventional ranges for thyroid stimulating hormone are very wide, right? So you could easily have someone who has a thyroid stimulating hormone of 2.6, not be flagged, not run a T4 on them, but then you check their T4 and their T4 is well below range. Right. So, mm. um, are we still there? So you're, we're asking to like so check the T4. Is that what you're saying? Like just check yeah, my T4. That, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So okay. I, so, well, so I tell people get a TSH, get a free and total T4, get a free and total T3 and ask for thyroid antibodies to be run because you can often have thyroid symptoms having normal thyroid hormone levels, but you have elevated antibodies, which means that you may have, or you have, if you have elevated antibodies, you have Hashimoto's, which is um, a, an autoimmune thyroiditis, an autoimmune thyroid condition. And you can right. have antibodies for many years before you see a decrease in hormone, but you have symptoms of low thyroid because you have inflammation in the thyroid. Mm. Um, and what would symptoms of having low th- thyroid? Is this when we get kind of get into having trouble losing weight? Yeah. Like, could, what are the could be feeling cold all the time, having trouble mm. losing weight, losing hair, dry skin. Um, 
It could be depression, anxiety, Mm -hmm. trouble sleeping. Um, And there's such a relationship between thyroid hormone levels and sex hormone levels. So your estrogen and progesterone and testosterone, but specifically, you know, uh, the, the hormones that are primarily released from the ovaries, which are your estrogen and progesterone. And if we don't have enough thyroid hormone, then the brain has a harder time telling the ovaries exactly how much hormone to secrete. And so we'll often really see, um, you know, a change of of thyroid during pregnancy, during menopause, um, during perimenopause as estrogen is sort of declining. You know, there's a term called thyropause where, you know, there's really a a change in the thyroid for many women around this age. So we have to watch that closely and you'd never want to treat someone just with HRT for estrogen and progesterone without doing a thorough evaluation of the thyroid, in my opinion. Oh, uh, yes. Yeah. That's, and that's the advice that I've received as well. It's like, let's treat your mm-hmm. thyroid first. I mean, you saw my results when Mike died. I like flatlined everything. My thyroid was, was sh- shot. It was losing hair everywhere, dry skin, mm-hmm. all the things. So it's a start, starting back like that scaffolding, almost like you're saying is, okay, we're treating the thyroid first just to make sure that's back on, on track and then starting to get into hormones. But it's definitely, it's definitely, uh, a process, right? Because sometimes mm-hmm. it's it's also having to go back and get tested again and see like mm-hmm. have my levels come up. Like it's really quite an investment for women to figure themselves out because it's quite it's quite a specific science. There's not one kind yeah. of pr- prescription for everyone. Yeah, and I think that it's challenging especially for women like yourself and and like me who pride themselves on being really healthy and not taking medications and never really having anything wrong with them. And so then all of a sudden they feel like they're being pathologized. Um, And, and I'll, I'll meet lots of women who are really averse to beginning something like a thyroid supplement or estrogen therapy because they've always been natural, quote unquote, they've always, you know, just relied on nutrition. And so I really hope that we can reframe that a little bit for people and help them understand that, you know, in 1900, just 125 years ago, right? Women only lived to be in their 40s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Like that was only two generations ago, and so we are in a completely new era um, where people are living a really long time, but they're living with a lot of chronic diseases. Like they're not mm-hmm. living super healthfully, especially after 50. Most Americans, at least, have at least one, if not two, chronic issues chronic diseases. And a lot of that can be, can be avoided if we simply replace estrogen. Of course, all of the lifestyle stuff is super important, but for those of you who are like, well, if I just keep doing, you know, my CrossFit and all my hiking and eating my, you know, power smoothies and taking like, then I don't need that. And I will say you'll probably be less symptomatic than Mm -hmm. your counterparts. However, there is no way that you can maintain optimal brain health, that you can maintain optimal bone health, that you can reduce your risk of all of these diseases nearly as well as if you were adding in estrogen as well. So right. it's it's just kind of like a, you know what, we get to live now to be 100 yeah. if, we, if we're really careful and intentional. And part of getting to do that is is using the science that we have. Mm-hmm. to it's sort of like think about knee replacements or hip replacements like yeah pro athletes right often need those because they just do if they're going to live in their body and be able to be functional for the rest of their life and so it's really I, I think a gift that we have the understanding and the science and the knowledge to say 
hey, this is what we can do to optimize our system. And this is just one example. I mean, the field of longevity medicine is, is a whole specialty, right? All by itself, people really yeah. studying, trying to understand how, how we live long and how we can live healthfully. Mm-hmm. And for women, this to me, I would argue is the most important piece. I love that. I love it. And you're getting women in power. You're, you're empowering mm-hmm. them to be able to choose themselves and to get the support and the supplementation that they need. Let's shift this a little bit into, you know, weight loss, because mm-hmm. I know that you focus a lot on that. Your program, you run a, a weight loss program specifically for women over 40, because women struggle, especially after babies. Like, how do you lose the baby weight? We're in our mm-hmm. 40s now. Like, the metabolism changes. But what have you noticed is what really can sort of shift this and like flip the switch for a lot of women yeah. at this stage. That's a great question. Yeah, I think I think we'll start with the problem. And part of the problem is that we're creatures of habit, us humans. And so if we utilized a certain way to lose weight all through our 20s, like every time we had a wedding on the weekend or you know, something that we wanted to lose weight for. Like, you know, you had your yeah. thing, right? Everybody oh yeah, we did it like thing. two weeks, like, you know, stop yeah. eating or whatever, or just whatever. Yeah. Didn't totally. like I got to get, get into that cute dress. It's in my closet. And I know like the things I'm going to do and I'm going to do it. Right. Um, and the body was flexible then and responded. And so then, then you, then you maybe take, you get, you get married yourself and then you have a few kids. And during that time, it's just kind of like survival mode. And then all of a sudden you're done having kids and you're like, I, I want, I'm ready to be skinny again, mm-hmm. <laughs> just to use, to use their language, not my right. own. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And they try the same thing. And like, no, like you got to use some new tricks here because at, at this point we're just dealing with um, a massively more stressed out person. Mm-hmm. Right. If you think about like, it's funny. I think about how sometimes I would say that I was so stressed in my twenties and then I'm like, that's so cute. That's <laughs> I know. Right. We look back and like, Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Fancy pants. Like <laughs> the life is so hard. University um, is such so stressful. <laughs> Totally. No, no. And but you know, so what we're handling now is is so much more. There's such a greater strain on our on our adrenal glands, and so really optimizing our stress response and and supporting the secretion of cortisol is so important. Um, and and so you know, how many women do you know are doing all the things for their kids and then getting them to bed, and then they finally have quote unquote alone time, mm-hmm. and they're you know popping on Netflix and drinking two or three glasses of wine and that's like their only time to decompress. And then the problem with that is it's massively dysregulating their cortisol. So even if they're skipping dinner and they're under eating calories, they're having you know, maybe 1200 calories a night. They're not sleeping well now because they've been drinking. They're mm-hmm. not getting good melatonin exposure at night, which is in a really important antioxidant. So protective for repair and health of the cells. And then they're also going to have low cortisol the next day because they've been spiking in the middle of the night. So they're exhausted. Right. And then the cycle continues. Oh my gosh. Um, Yes. You're describing like all of us during our small children cycle, right? A hundred percent. Yeah. And so, and then we're like, why can't I lose weight? Right. We're, so we're not, and we're not looking at the actual roots of the problem We're we're, and then we go to our doctor and say, we can't lose weight. We check my thyroid. Mm, (laughs) Same problem. (laughs) But they're all, but then we're also being told by our, by the medical professionals and by a lot of people who run gyms and nutritionists that we just need to, you know, exercise more, that it's a calories in calorie out equation. And it's really, really not for women over 35, um, which is where we specialize. And it's not only that, right. It's not only that. Not yeah. only that, right? Like mm-hmm. you, you mean, even if you have, if we've done everything that we can do to manage your stress and everything, 
and you're still eating 3000 calories a day, you probably won't lose weight. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> However, I mean, I will say that most of the time when we have, we, we, we work with women in, in one of my programs where you, we ask that you desire to lose 20 or more pounds, right? So it's women who have significant weight to lose. And most of those women are coming in with, um, with a cal- already at a calorie deficit. They're already nice. under eating. Yeah. And they're and they can't lose weight. So actually, we're doing like some refeeding to mm-hmm. fix their to fix their metabolism. And so a lot, but but the first step, the very first thing that we teach people to do, is to fix their circadian rhythm. Mm-hmm. Um, we're very disconnected from our circadian rhythm, meaning like we are we all live in harmony with the sun, mm-hmm. and so we're spending a lot of time looking at blue light throughout the day. Um, we're are a lot of lot more artificial light exposure than natural light exposure, especially when you live in a colder, grayer part of the country. Mm-hmm. And then we're not prioritizing sleep. We're we're going to bed at you know eleven, twelve at night, and mm-hmm. the most reparative sleep happens really between ten and ten and midnight. So if you're not getting those hours of sleep, you're you're missing out on that opportunity. Um, and so this results in a lot of cortisol dysregulation and kind of falling apart. So the first thing I do is is we teach people how to sleep. We tell them to stop eating three hours before bedtime mm-hmm. so that when you go to sleep, your body can focus on really sleep and repair yeah. um, instead of trying to still digest food, which really gets in the way. Right. Yeah. Um, we, we focus on caffeine hygiene. We focus on light hygiene. I really encourage people to get 30 minutes of sunlight every day between mm-hmm. 10 and two. Um, you know, this is where having an animal is really helpful. If you have to walk your dog in the morning, like those, that morning exposure to sun is actually preparing your body for sleep at that night. So you start preparing for your sleep in the morning to limit alcohol really to, um, two or less days per week, no more than four drinks per week. Absolutely. At at a max. And, And for people that have a lot of cortisol issues or hormonal issues, we, you know, encourage two or less drinks Mm -hmm. per week. Um, and so we, we really focus on these basic things. We're not taking away massive amounts of food. We're focusing on taking away pro-inflammatory foods like processed foods, refined sugars, um, artificial colors, um, vegetable oils, processed oils, focusing on whole nutritious things. But we're really not saying, hey, don't we want we want you to eat less. It's like that's actually counterproductive yes. in these situations. Yeah. Focusing on kind of repair. And I call this period um, like a period of convalescence for women, many women who are kind of running that hamster wheel um, and they have a stress response that's just out of control, um, really need to kind of back it off. And at first they may feel more tired because, and you may have experienced this, like when you finally start to rest, it's like mm. you realize how tired you are. Yes. Um, so there's a lot of that happening in the beginning. And then, you know, in that same, at that same time, we're also assessing estrogen sufficiency. Is someone ovulating it, meaning are they making progesterone in the second half of their cycle or are they not? Or maybe they're fully postmenopausal. In that case, we just replace the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, do they need some cortisol support? Um, that we, we're really assessing the cortisol curve and not just treating based on symptoms because a lot of women think that they have high cortisol, which we think of as stress hormone, but really it's an, it's an essential hormone for energy. It dictates all of our energy and immune function. Right. Um, a lot of times they actually have really low cortisol because they're just so depleted. Mm, so we're really right. focusing on all that repair at first. Yeah. Um, and then we can, we start to get more specific, like really increasing protein intake, talking about mm-hmm. weight training and things like that, getting steps in and a lot of the basic stuff. But I think the problem is that women are so much more prone to burnout, especially over 35 for societal reasons and because of hormonal reasons. And right. so we have to repair the burnout first. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And, you know, in our practice, you know, people can do this for sure without medications, but in our practice, we do use semaglutide, which is a, um, the, yeah, the generic Ozempic, form of Ozempic. Right? Yeah, exactly. I wanted to so, switch into that because I know that there's, that's been quite a topic of conversation. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of, you know, questions about that. And you know, I, I always hear like, oh, hey, check out, she must've done Ozempic or blah, blah, blah. Or I can't believe it. She lost weight so fast. She must be doing Ozempic. Yeah. Like, so what is it? And I'd love to, to know your opinion about it because I think people mm-hmm. give it a bad rap, but I think that, you know, sometimes you need, there's certain things you need to do for yep. yourself. Absolutely. And I think also we have a thing, you know, where when something is too good to be true, like we, like Taylor Swift, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, she's, she's too good to be true. So we've got to knock her, you know, like she, she's the real deal. And she's, you know, she's magnificent and she's an icon and she's, she, she will be known for all of time, right. For, Mm -hmm. for the work that she's created and it can, she can just be that good. That's okay. Right. Um, our brain doesn't like that. So I think we have a similar situation with Ozempic and that like people are digging their heels and trying so hard to find the things that are wrong with it. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, with any medication, even a supplement, right? They're done the wrong way. It can, it can be, there can be issues, right? I think that part of the problem and and the place where I actually agree with the health coaches and the nutritionists that are bashing semaglutide online is that we're, we're doling it out in very unhealthy populations of people who are Mm. morbidly obese and we're not giving them any coaching or lifestyle support. Um, we're just throwing them on a medication and they have horrible gut dysfunction and, you know, dysbiosis imbalances in their gut. We're not teaching them to eat whole foods. We're not cleaning up their gut. And so those people are going to be more at risk for things like pancreatitis, which is a um, sort of inflammatory condition of the pancreas that can be, you know, really nasty and put you in the hospital with lots of vomiting and diarrhea and other symptoms. Um, and it's essentially when you kind of get this backup, um, of bile flow through the pancreas, Mm. Um, and we don't see that in our population at all because we're, we're working with relatively healthy people. And if they're, you know, if they come to us pretty unhealthy, we're getting them healthy, you know, while we're starting this medication, right. We're working on their digestion. We're making sure that they're eliminating, um, you know, they're, they're, they're changing their diet. And this is why I don't have a clinic where we just kind of give it out to anybody, right. Mm -hmm. Where they really have to go into an intensive program where they're committed to, to doing all the things that the body needs to do. So, so, so the you know Ozempic is um, or semaglutide. This is a, it's a GLP one agonist. It's actually a, a gut peptide. It's something that we make all on our own in our gut. So everybody makes it. So we're just supplementing with something that our body is is already making on its own. Um, it does a few things in the body. It um, increases satiety, which means that it makes you feel full faster. Mm-hmm. Um, and and somewhat you know in our modern you know buffet era of living that barometer for most people is not dialed in the way that it should be. Right. Right. Um, We're often not as sensitive to our own fullness just because of all the sensory overload and the overwhelm. Right. A lot of times we talk about Mm -hmm. in my population that sometimes we're eating just because our nervous system is overwhelmed Mm -hmm. um, or overstimulated and we're trying to kind of numb that. So, you know, that, 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 that's a place where it can be really helpful. Um, It also increases sympathetic output. So if you're someone who monitors your heart rate, what that means is that it your heart rate actually goes up a little bit, probably five to seven beats per minute. Um, and so it, it just it increases the metabolic rate, basically, your resting metabolic rate, um, which helps you burn calories, burn more calories. Yeah. The other really interesting thing that it does is um, it decreases a process known as gluconeogenesis, which is a fancy word for basically saying the liver releasing glucose into the bloodstream. So okay. the liver has many functions. 
one of the functions of the liver is to store glucose at all times so that you, Cindy, if you haven't eaten yet today, but you get approached by a bear and need to run really fast, really far, you can, you can relinquish glucose from your liver, deliver them to your quads and your glutes and your arms and all the muscles that you need to run as fast as you can, not right. having eaten right? It's like a backup storage mm. fuel, right? Okay. So the thing about gluconeogenesis is that, you know, it was really useful to us in prehistoric times. And of course, it's useful now too, if you actually are fasting or you're, you really do need fuel, right? You, you get a little bit of that happen when you're exercising. Um, but the problem is that so many of us live in such an activated state of stress that we, our, our liver is often releasing glucose when it's not really needed, when we're just having a stressful response to our computer, right? <laughs> right? Something where we don't need to mobilize glucose for, um, or because women, we see this all the time. Most of the women that are in our program have had lots of cyclical dieting over the, their adult life. So for probably mm -hmm. 20, 20 plus years, they've gone in and out of restrictive eating patterns. And that history of restrictive eating actually worsens gluconeogenesis for that person because their body's like, this bitch ain't going to feed me. Right. <laughs> I got I've seen back. this before, right? I'm yeah, like, I'm, I'm like, give I'm going to give her a glucose shot, you know, I'm not falling for it this time. <laughs> no, I'm not falling for it. So, so we, we see that all the time. And I actually see this with people who have like extreme, even, even like people, and we don't take people in the program who have a history of anorexia, but we see that this, this mechanism of the body raising glucose quickly or creating a glucose response is actually worse in people with um, eating disorders with a, mm -hmm. a history of disordered eating. Yeah. And, and, and food restriction. So, so one of this, this is really useful though, in our population for the women who've had a lot of cyclical dieting, who have severely out of control stress um, and whose glucose, no matter what we do, like they, they're always, their body's always keeping their glucose high because their stress is so high. Right. And so the, the semaglutide actually decreases that process. And so we see better fasting glucose numbers, um, you know, better fasting numbers in between meals and, um, and that produces less, less insulin. I was going to say estrogen, right. not, not, <laughs> not estrogen, a less insulin and insulin is really important because insulin is how we actually store fat. So if we right. want to stop storing as much fat, we need to lower insulin. And the only way to lower insulin is to lower blood sugar. Okay. Um, so, so that's what this, that's what Ozempic helps is just to kind of release some of that stored fat. Yeah. And do you, do you feel like there's, there's like a, a boundary or a level that you wouldn't go under to prescribe it? Cause you do see a lot of women who I wouldn't have necessarily thought they were overweight by any means, mm -hmm. take it to get what you said, skinny, right? Like we're yeah. taking it to get skinny. I think that's such a good question because, you know, there are a lot of skinny fat women mm -hmm. who are, who are small, small appearing, right? They, they were raised in the nineties. They're like very much Kate Moss babies and they've under eaten their whole lives, but they actually have metabolic disease. And so they're under, they're under muscled. They don't have they enough don't muscle. Even know, probably. They don't know it unless they get a DEXA scan or they do an in-body scan or something that mm -hmm. tells them their body composition. And because they're under muscled, they are not metabolizing glucose well. So if you don't have enough muscle, this is why in the second half of our year long program, we really work with people to improve their muscle mass, because that's the only way that you can actually change your metabolic makeup really is by improving more muscle, less fat tissue, because right. muscle will metabolize glucose for you. Right. Yeah. And so we all see a woman all the time who's, you know, five, four, 135 pounds, you know, a size four, a size six, and, you know, and her 
fasting insulin is elevated, her fasting glucose is elevated. She maybe has a little extra weight around her belly, but she might actually be a good candidate for semaglutide depending on other factors because it's going to bring her back into metabolic balance while we work on balancing her blood sugars with her diet, mm. you know, lifestyle things, stress management, sleep, and b- building muscle. So mm. I think it's really has to be case by case. And this is why I think it's such a shame that the only people who can access brand name Ozempic or prescription, the prescription version of this drug are people who are morbidly obese because you guys, the train left the station like so long ago, we we could like get way ahead of this, you know? Um, And for me, I'm interested when I meet this woman at 42 who has, you know, three kids and they're in multiple sports and she's stressed to the max and she's got a full-time job and she's drinking alcohol every night to cope. And, you know, her blood pressure is already rising. Her cholesterol is already rising and she's a hot mess and mm-hmm. she can't lose weight. And she's so depressed about the fact that she can't lose weight that she just keeps persisting in the behaviors that are harmful to her. She's a great candidate for semaglutide as long as we can get her drinking down because you can't drink a lot of semaglutide. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just, you know, it's not because of that, that it slows down digestion. Mm-hmm. And so we're getting a backup in bile flow. You're more at risk for pancreatitis. So we, we actually have people sign something saying that they won't drink more than four drinks a week if they're going to go on the medication. Um, but they're, in my opinion, these women are perfect candidates. And these are the women that are 100% going to have cardiovascular disease in 10 years. Mm-hmm. And we can stop that. We can, yeah. you know, it's part of a whole plan. It's a tool yeah. it's a and tool. not all, it's a yeah. tool and not all women need to stay on it. Mm-hmm. If they can get really committed, it just depends. And I say, I always say to people, I don't care if you stay on it. Like I right. care right. that you are on the path. However, like I am not living your life. You might be going through a divorce mm-hmm. that lasts two or three years and your stress is we can't do anything about it except keep moving forward, but you're going to be in it for the next three years. Your life is going to be so hard. And so your stress, you know, threshold is, is not in a healthy place. And we know that's affecting your metabolic health. This could be a great tool for you, provided that of course you're getting the other support that you're making sure to eat enough, that you're not, you're eating plenty of protein to keep that, you know, body composition in a healthy place, but it's a great tool to get you through that time. And, you know, for every person, it's going to be a a month to month, year to year decision about whether or not it's a good long term thing for them to use or not. And I see lots of women on it. Okay, long term, like it's safe to use long term. Okay. And most people I find unless they already have pretty bad metabolic disease when they come to us, meaning they've got high blood pressure and, you know, all kinds of issues already. Most people can go down to a very small kind of maintenance dose every seven to 10 days. So Mm -hmm. taking it less, a little bit less frequently you know, or maybe even just every two weeks, it's really individualized. So we really tailor it to kind of exactly that person. And we have people use continuous glucose monitors to really track their blood sugar and see, you know, what's happening dynamically in the body. Oh my gosh, that's so interesting. Because I do think Mm -hmm. that it gets a bad rap and, you know, people are pointing out the celebrities that take it, like Oprah, for example. I don't think it's publicized, but she would be like, oh, people think she probably should go Zempic. Oh my God. And And I'm thinking... Poor lady, we've watched her struggle with her weight for how long now? How many like decades? And if she's found something that works for her and can also, you know, hopefully, like you said, balancing it out in this healthy way where you're also doing the good things and not just relying on that that yeah. prescription. Yeah. yeah. And I think, you know, it's it's so to me, I think about Oprah and I'm like, what a prolific, amazing woman. Like I want her around a long time and I don't want her to have a heart attack. Yeah. You know, like, so I, I'm, I'm all on board with her having better glucose balance. And 
you know, we, we, you never like until you walk a day in someone's shoes, right. We don't really understand. Like, I'm sure you got, you talk about that a lot. Like just, you never really know what someone's going through, Never, you know? And like all of the things that all of the women who are in my weight loss program, like it is not, I promise you not a single one of them are in that program because they they make poor choices. They're not there because they're just like eating Cheetos every night. Like they're there because they have, they're doing the very best that they can in the situation that they're in. And maybe they're also like my, like me, I'm, I just, the way that my body falls apart is, is metabolically. Like I had gestational diabetes in my third and fourth pregnancies, despite like doing so many things well. It's just the way that my body shows, stress shows up that way. For some people, it's autoimmunity. I don't have any autoimmune issues, but I, I metabolically fall apart. And so it's a great tool for me, right? Mm-hmm. If I am trying to juggle so much and handle so much and have a lot on my plate, it helps remind my body what a healthier baseline is, yes. right? And, and it helps me when you're the more balanced that you feel, whether you're doing this with something that's managing someone's metabolism or you're replacing their hormones, the more balanced you feel the better you can then go out and and do the things that are actually in alignment with how you want to be. You can Mm -hmm. go to that yoga class with confidence. You can like, you know, when you feel like crap, you do things that make you feel more like crap. Absolutely. It's just this like never ending cycle. You just keep getting into it. And same with the alcohol at night. Like when I used to drink alcohol at night, because it was, it was my coping mechanism when I had small kids, because it would be the one thing that would just like calm the nerves. Right. And then it tends you into that cycle where you wake up the next day, kind of feeling a little bit sad, a little bit Mm -hmm. self-loathing, maybe high anxiety. And then, you know, you have your crazy day of stress. And then the one thing that brings you out of that, that anxiety at the end of the day is your glass or three of wine. And then you are just coping, you know, you're literally in this coping phase of your life and, you know, doing it, knowing your hormones. I had no idea what my hormones were. Like I think in our mind, I mean, even my generation, I'm 48, but even in this generation, I feel like you don't think about your hormones until you're close to 50 when you could be in menopause, not realizing that the treatment and feeling better could start so early, you know, because we spend our whole lives. I think you even said this before when you, when you spoke, we spend our whole lives like trying to trying to prevent our our hormones so that we don't get pregnant, right? Like we're trying mm. to just like block them off, and now we want them back, you know, mm. so desperately. And rebuilding them is also going to help. And there's so many little things from your skin to your hair to joint mm. lubrication, like all of these things that don't necessarily have anything to do with, you know not getting pregnant or getting pregnant or mm-hmm. losing weight, but just those yep. small things to make a woman feel like a bloody woman. <laughs> you know, I think it, you make such a good point too, because we have just raised up an army of women who don't have any freaking clue what it means to feel hormonal, like what, what a normal ebb and flow of hormones is because yes. we shut that down. Like most of the women that walked through my door were on birth control without batting an eye from 18 to 35, Yeah, you know? And, and so they, they, you know, you, you actually, worsen your chances of osteoporosis. When you do that, you change someone's sex drive. Sometimes women's testosterone never recovers from exposure to birth control for that long. So, you know, and then, then those women are 35, they're so happy to be off drugs. And then you're telling them they need to go on HRT and they're like, what, (laughs) what's going on? But it's, you know, it's really backwards. And, and the, 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 the whole, the whole point is that 
that cycle, that 28 day cycle that our body goes through is so health protective. It's so important for health. If you can do anything for your daughters that are this age and find other methods besides hormonal birth control to keep them from getting pregnant until they decide to, please do. Right. And Mm -hmm. because, and then for you, check your hormones. And if they have started to fall off the rails, find a way to replace them so mm-hmm. that you can, you can live in harmony, right. And, yeah. and see, and see the benefits of that because it really spills out to everything. And I think it's a crying shame that, you know, from age 40 to 50 to 60 and so on for women, the rates of, um, of antidepressant prescription goes up astronomically oh, yeah. every, every year. Um, because, because women's hormones are on the decline, but our medical, you know, establishment is not, not it's not literate in that and can't mm-hmm. actually treat the problem and instead we're just masking it with with antidepressants so so just disappointing so oh, it is and i like how you said you know shame because i feel like even as a young age even from the day that your daughter gets her period we are hormone shaming basically like oh yeah. she's so hormonal moods mm-hmm. are all over the place well yeah this is just part of the natural body's regulation and we start to put it like in this whole mindset of we just need to get that under control and stabilize you. So you have no more, you know, erratic feelings or emotions or whatever it is in your body. I feel like from a young age, we label it and we shame it. And so then our women are automatically like, Oh God, I don't want hormones. Like I don't want my moods to be all over the place. Well, that's not the, it's not it. Yeah. And they're thinking that they need to fit into that masculine box of expectation. Yeah. You know, whereas like the gift of being hormonal is that we get to see the world through different colors at each different phase of the month, which is really beautiful and makes us so much more complex and insightful than our male counterparts. So um, it's possible to keep that going. And I think that that's the message I really want to drive home for every woman who's listening to this, who's in their 40s and 50s, is that you have a tool available to you to keep your yourself like clear and sharp and um, to be seeing the world in, in such a complex and, and with so much depth. So I love really it. awesome. I yeah. love it. And oh my gosh, we could talk about this forever all day long. Um, but as we just wrap up, tell everyone where they can find you if they want, you know, information research, if they want to join a program potentially. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I hang out a lot on Instagram. I'm at Emily Sadri underscore N as in Nancy P stands for nurse practitioner. Or you can look up um, my website at emilysadry.com. Amazing. Thank you, girl. Thank you, Fred, for yeah, being here. You're so I welcome. Always Thank love you for having me. With you. This was amazing. Thank you for all you amazing. do, Cindy. And thank you for all you do. You've changed my entire mindset around hormones and really got myself in order because of you. So thank you. Mm-hmm. Such a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Divorce Redefined, changing the experience of divorce. We hope Cindy and her guests were able to put your mind at ease and help you make the right decision for your marriage. We wish you a beautiful week.